he came in there and just made a decision in his judgment that we were going to overthrow that referendum that occurred. That kind of thing occurs way too often in Pennsylvania. So I think one of the first inherent problems I see with Act 111 is it can be very undemocratic. And I think that's a problem. I think, as I said before, it's financially unsustainable. Essentially, local governments do not control how much we pay our police officers or what their benefits are. If we want to change those, unless the police agree to it, we have to go to our interest arbitration. Again, where this person who's not elected, we may not know him from Adam or Eve, makes this decision about whether what we should be paying them and not paying them. The result of that, Nancy, has been, if you look at police salaries over the last 20 or 30 years, they have increased at a much greater rate than the rate of inflation. Mm. And so you can imagine in a, in a community like Upper Moreland Township, if we're, if our revenues are increasing by 2% per year, for example, but yet the police department salaries are increasing at 4% per year, that's not a really good model. Matt Canlon is the manager at Upper Moreland Township in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. In this episode, he has a few things to say about collective bargaining laws for police and fire in Pennsylvania. He has a depth of understanding and skill for examining issues from multiple angles. This not only makes him valuable in his profession, but also makes him a great conversationalist. In this interview, we talk about police, the role of municipal manager, and the challenges in municipal management today. His advice for young professionals in the field is timeless. When we did this interview, we were still in early stages of development in the pioneering change community. Once we began the podcast, I knew this was an interview that would interest others. If you would like to learn more about the pioneering change community or the PCC, you can sign up for our newsletter via a link in the show notes. That is also where you will find Matt's contact information. So, Let's just start from the beginning. Hello, Matt Camlin. It's really good to have you here today. And I just appreciate so much you taking some time to introduce yourself and what you've been up to. Can you just say a few words where you're at now and maybe a little bit about how long you've been in local government and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. First, thank, thank you for, for this opportunity. I have been in local government management for a little over 25 years. I worked in Sykesville, Maryland as a town manager there for about 17 years. That's a great historic town mm -hmm. uh, outside of Baltimore. Uh, then I moved to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where I was the borough manager there. And I was there for a little over seven years. That's a great little town too. Uh, that I know you're familiar with, with yeah. the great community. Yeah. And then I've been here in Upper Moreland Township now for about a year and a half. So that's it, just in a, nut, a nutshell. One of the first areas that, that I, I'm really interested to pick your brain about is your experience with and thoughts about police. The police departments are so front and center right now in the news. I have a lot of thoughts about how our police departments might evolve in the future, but what I think I've heard you speak about has more to do with just the laws, particularly as they relate to bargaining and, and arbitration and how it can be difficult to manage police budgets. And I've heard that from a lot of my clients. So 
I wonder, it could put a real strain on internal relationships inside the municipality. And I don't know if you have, through your time with this, come to any new insights that you might offer with respect to the municipal manager in the role of overseeing police budgets and to the extent that's possible to manage. If you have any, and maybe some thoughts about the difference between, again, a township government versus a borough government. I think others might be interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. Let me first say that a township and a borough and a town in Maryland are all radically different from each other. In a borough, the police department is managed by the mayor. And and I could spend a lot of time just talking about that issue. But what I want to focus on are just some of the comments that you and I had, my feelings on Act 111, which I think Act 111 is one of the biggest threats to the future financial stability and sustainability of Pennsylvania communities. I really believe that it's, it, it really is a, a major threat that I think is getting further out of control as time goes by. And I'll, I'll mention that a little bit later why I think that, but so Act 111, I guess the first thing I would say about Act, let me back up. One of the really unique features of American government and not so much anymore, but back when it was first established 250 years ago was this concept of civilian control over the military. That's a very innovative concept. The king always was over the military, but the civilian elected a civilian control over the military. And of course that extended to civilian control over the police. That's our principle. That's a very American democratic concept that the police are beholden to elected officials. Just as everyone, all all of the civilian public servants are, are beholden to elected officials. Somewhere along the line, I would argue that has been a little bit short-circuited. And I think Act 111 played a significant role in that. And let me say why. So first with Act 111, I think it's, I think it's, there's much of it that's inherently undemocratic. And I'll just illustrate with one example. So in the city of Pittsburgh, I don't know, I don't know the story intimately, but from what I've heard, the city of Pittsburgh had a, a policy that their police officers needed to live within the city limits. They they had a residency requirement. Now, I'm not particularly a fan of residency requirements, but that was what the city of Pittsburgh wanted. And then they had a referendum on whether they wanted their police officers to have to live in the city. And it passed. So the citizens of the community passed a referendum saying, we want to keep our residency requirement. Sometime after that, not long after that, they were in interest, I think it was interest arbitration, And the arbitrator made the decision that they were no longer going to have the residency requirement. Now you look at that and you just think, holy smokes, that's, that's a, he, one person, and this guy's not from Pittsburgh. He was not elected. He came in there and just made a decision in his judgment that we were going to overthrow that referendum that occurred. That kind of thing occurs way too often in Pennsylvania. So I think one of the first inherent problems I see with Act 111 is it can be very undemocratic. And I think that's a problem. I think, as I said before, it's financially unsustainable. Essentially, local governments do not control how much we pay our police officers or what their benefits are. If we want to change those, unless the police agree to it, we have to go to our interest arbitration. Again, where this person who's not elected, we may not know him from Adam or Eve, makes this decision about whether what we should be paying them and not paying them. The result of that, Nancy, has been 
If you look at police salaries over the last 20 or 30 years, they have increased at a much greater rate than the rate of inflation. Mm. And so you can imagine in a, in a community like Upper Moreland Township, if we're, if our revenues are increasing by 2% per year, for example, but yet the police department salaries are increasing at 4% per year, that's not a really good model. And over time, we've seen that the police salaries, we don't have a single police officer now who makes under $100,000. Now, I've been around long enough to remember 10 or 12 years ago when we would be sitting in conferences and people would laugh at that. Oh, that's not going to happen. That's crazy talk. You're not going to have six-figure police officers. Every single one of our police officers in our department makes over $100,000. Yeah. And you can't control the overtime because yeah. to a certain extent, you don't have a lot of managerial rights, mm. which is one of the other challenges. And I, you stopped me because I could go on and on about all this stuff. So one of the, one of the other challenges with it, it creates an inherently adversarial relationship between the township management and the police department. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that obviously can be improved upon it. Most managers do a good job of, of maintaining a good relationship, but there is that tendency to have this adversarial relationship and you really have to work at it to, to avoid that. Um, I even jotted down a couple of these things. And here's one that I think is really important today. Act 111 blocks necessary reform. Mm-hmm. So even if you're one of those people that believe that police departments need to, to have some reform, especially in light of some of the things that happened over the last five or six years, it's very challenging in Pennsylvania to get those changes because everything, if you want to do any changes, you end up having to do many of those through arbitration. You can't just make managerial decisions, at least for the most part. So I think those reasons, I think all of those are real challenges to Pennsylvania municipalities that prevent municipalities from adequately managing their police department. It is difficult when there are bad apples. That's one of the areas that I think about and that I see often. The other one is just having chiefs that get paid more than the manager. That drives elected bodies nuts. And we often have conversations about that. But I think every, there's a lot of managers that keep telling me stories of police officers that were terminated for really good reasons. Yeah. And they were reinstated by arbitrators who overturned. Again, this gets back to this democratic. Right. The elected body or manager, whichever what circumstance, terminates a police officer for cause. And it just simply gets overturned and there's no appeal to an arbitrator. So when that arbitrator makes a decision, that's it. There's no appeal to a court. There's so it's a, it's a very challenging system that I think was designed with the best of intentions. And, and, and I think it's important to separate the system from the police officers. There's no, it's, it's inappropriate to be mad at police officers about this. They, they didn't create this and they're doing what most of us would do. And that is trying to follow that system and benefit yourself as best you can out of that system. But the system is a very challenging system that I believe threatens Pennsylvania municipalities. Yeah, and I don't know, there was, I think the uh, a few years ago, you had mentioned a House bill or a Senate bill that had some hope of seeing the light, but it, it did not, as my understanding, it did not really survive. So they're really, they have a lot, there's a lot of power still in this state that comes from the police unions. And I I, just for a minute, let me tell you a quick story that was funny. Not too long ago, I had a meeting with an elected official and this was a state elected official. And this elected official, I won't tell you where the politics were, but 
I made the point to this elected official. I said, look, is there any way we can get any kind of reform in Act 111? Some of these communities, we got to get some relief. Right. And he looked at me and said, Matt, I couldn't agree with you more. However, I don't ever see meaningful reform occurring in Pennsylvania for Act 111. And he says, "There's and here's the reason why. The reason is, and this is a generalization, the Republicans will never do anything to hurt the police and the Democrats will never do anything to hurt unions. These <laughs> have a union. So they're in a way, in many respects, it's it, the system, Act 111 is untouchable yeah. because of those two things. Yeah. And I will say in general terms, I feel like there's a need to really empower chiefs. I feel like there's some good leaders out there. Yes. And they know the right thing to do, but they cannot make it happen. And I've, and, and I don't know, I, I just, that's my thought is where I would like to focus and, and helping them to maybe assess new candidates better, even as something that allows there to be more information flow about there, there are policies in place that say you have to erase all disciplinary actions after, of them say 12 months, which is crazy. And some of these have just been negotiated uh, because somebody is negotiating the agreement that maybe is not quite as savvy as the other side. So, so I do think the chiefs maybe are one avenue of trying to get some buy-in to whether it's performance systems, assessment systems, something to get a better handle on who, who's in their departments is my yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the chief of police ends up being really the, the key to a, a well-run police department. Mm-hmm. And I, we just, about seven months ago, we hired a new chief of police here at Upper One. This is my eighth chief of police that I've worked with. Wow. So I've seen good chiefs, I've seen excellent chiefs, and I've seen not so good chiefs. And I will say one of, one of the characteristics that I've seen in the successful chiefs is all managers know this little story that you have a person who's a really good ditch digger. They're just the best ditch digger around. And the way we reward that ditch digger is we make them the supervisor of ditch diggers. They may not be good at supervising ditch diggers, but they're, but we do that. So we do it with police as well. You can have an excellent police officer and the way we reward that excellent police officer is make them a sergeant or corporal and then we keep moving up the, the chain. Yeah. That's not necessarily always the best way to reward people, but that's the way we do it. So a lot of these, some of your chiefs just they go up the ranks that way. Mm-hmm. They, they might be really good and they, but I will say the successful chiefs in my experience are the ones that can make the break from being a police officer only to being a manager. Because once they become a chief of police, they've now been charged with the management of all of the community's police resources. Mm-hmm. That's cars, that's money, that's buildings, that's officers, that's uniforms. So you're now you're becoming a manager. That's a different set of responsibilities and skills than being a police officer, a yeah. sergeant, or even a lieutenant. And so oftentimes these chiefs get into the position and they just don't have the skill set. Yeah. And it's very difficult at that point in their career to start training them how to be a manager. Yep. Some of them, you see these chiefs that just aren't good managers, yet they're put in this position. But I think one other comment I would make about the police industry as a, as a general, I think police do a wonderful job of training sergeants. I think they do a great job of training lieutenants and corporals. I don't think they particularly have good training out there for chiefs on how to be executives and how to be managers, how to be finance managers, run, develop a budget, 
mm-hmm. personnel management, all those kinds of things. So it's, I think that those are some of the challenges with the, with the chiefs. We happen to have a great chief right now and we vetted the daylights out of them and not all communities can do that kind of vetting. So sometimes you'll have guys or gals slip through the cracks that maybe are everything you think they are. Yeah, I do. I agree with you completely. And it's true. That was how I got into the field of HR. I was a psychology major that that went out in the work world and said, wait a minute, why are these people being promoted to these leadership positions? They don't know how to manage people. But I think it's true even on a broader perspective from organizations managing budgets and resources and big picture thinking. Yeah. That's, this is on the same topic, but the other question that I had um, emailed you about has to do with professional transitions. And I, I looked up your transition uh, into your position now and found out that you were actually, we feel like, I guess it was Dave Dotties or Dave? Dotties. I know the name and I'm sure I've met him. Yeah. And you were selected and hired, but you were in tandem with him. Is that right? Is that how it worked? For yeah. how long? For three months. Three months. Okay. That's a good amount of time. Yeah. It, it's probably, you probably don't need that much, but when I was hired in Sykesville, I was 28 years old and I just had graduated graduate school and I came in and there was no manager there because the manager was gone. And so I came in and it was this huge learning curve on so many levels because I was so green. And then I went to Carlisle and I, I followed a, a, a manager who was very organized and he had pretty much everything laid out. And then I came here and we have this three month, it was really interesting experience. I think for those communities that can afford that. And that's very expensive to paying two managers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really helpful. I think once you get beyond about a month and a half, it probably was not necessarily as beneficial as the first month and a half. Mm-hmm. It was really helpful because you're able to learn the organization so much quicker and so much more fully, and you don't have to discover a lot of things that you would have, you would have normally done if it would take you six months to do it. You're able to find that out much earlier. So. I thought it was really helpful, but again, the three months was probably more than was necessary. Yeah. You have the same staff though, or were there any other staff changes when he retired? No. So I, I came in, they set me up in an office that was just a little bit down the hall from mm-hmm. David. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we interacted all the time during the day. Mm-hmm. It gave me a chance to, to to go around and meet a lot of people and really develop relationships. He showed me how the culture worked. Every organization's got a culture, how they do things. So it was really helpful. Yeah. I thought that was a really good idea. This is a, a question that, that I get a lot just around succession planning and when do we begin and how much of a overlap there should be. What do you think about some municipalities talk about hiring, for instance, an assistant with the thought that there would be, this would be a succession, a successor eventually? Yeah, there, I think there is a lot of discussion in city manager circles about this topic. And should you have an assistant manager that's a dedicated assistant manager, or do you put that position with a department head? So maybe your finance director is your finance director and assistant manager. Or do you not need an assistant manager at all? And, and I think there's really valid arguments for all of those positions. I think some assistant managers can get stuck in that position. I think mm-hmm. 
assistant and then be a manager. And for whatever reasons, they get stuck because when they're interviewing for a job, they don't have that experience of being the manager. I guess my opinion is I think assistant managers are, are it's a very useful position, but it, it's got to be utilized properly. Yeah. A lot of managers aren't willing to give up authority and give up tasks to be done. And so a lot of man, assistant managers would sit around twiddling their thumbs saying, give me something to do. But the way I've had three assistant managers in my career and I delegate responsibility for managing certain departments to that person and that may be rotating around. And I believe you delegate a lot of that to an assistant. Yeah. Anyway, so those are just some thoughts. Yeah, you know, so I've never seen, I've never gone through a situation where the assistant manager is a problem. It's always when I, my experience has been, as you said, if they're, if, if it's understood that they're going to have a clear role that's defined, that it works. The issues that I have is when the manager doesn't want an assistant manager. And I think those are where some of the other, either it's fears or that it's not going to be used properly. I don't know that there's a whole nother bag of things that, that go on there. But I do think legitimately bringing a young professional up and giving them that assistant manager with the understanding that they may move on there. You're going to, you're going to groom them and then they may move on and they may be, make a great manager someday if they are there when the succession takes place. So it's, I think you have to have some good confidence in yourself to be a manager that, and also that clear role that you understand what they're going to be doing. It's, a, it's an asset in yeah. that, in that. I think it's important for the profession yeah. to have that kind of, it, it's almost like a minor league. So you get a chance to go there and maybe you're not fully responsible, but you work closely with a manager. You're given many of the responsibilities of a manager and then boom, you're ready to move into that manager position. So. Yeah. I think the biggest problem is the way managers use the assistant manager. I don't think they use them very effectively. In mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, speaking about young managers and if you have some thoughts about if you were young, if you were coming up in the career right now, is there anything that you would do differently or that you might offers counsel to the younger professional just coming up. But you sent me that question. I jotted down some comments and some of these are, it's a little bit of stream of consciousness, but so these are not in any particular order. I think when I was coming up and today, it's still the same with respect to the ability to write. I think people need to have the ability to communicate through the written word. And so that's one thing I would say that was true 30 years ago. It's true today. I think it'll be true 30 years from now. You have to be able to express yourself in writing. In connection with that, I think you also need to be able to express yourself verbally. This is an area I think that has that a lot of younger folks, I think, need to work on because I don't think they've had the opportunity to have the kind of practice that past generations have had. I will tell you a quick story. So a good friend of mine down in Maryland, his job is he subcontracts with Hilton Hotels and his job is to take their newly hired people. These are MBAs. These are people with MBAs and he takes them and teaches them how to have conversations with people, how to have a dinner appointment, how to sit at the dinner table and have a dinner with someone and communicate with them. And he said that, and he said, you'd be amazed at how deficient some of these folks are coming out. And a lot of it's because of digital communication. Yeah. 
they're not able to look someone in the eye across from the table and have a good, meaningful conversation. So I think that's another suggestion I would make is you have to be able to communicate verbally and in writing. And it's helpful to be a good public speaker, although that's not critical, but you need to be able to communicate. The other thing I would mention to people coming up is be careful of social media. Be very careful of that. I know it's hard to tell a 12-year-old that or a 15-year-old or an 18-year-old or even a 21-year-old, but I'm finding that more and more people are being disqualified from positions because of stuff they put on social media five years ago. And that's a shame because I wouldn't want to be judged by what I did when I was 15 or even when I was 20. And I think we're shortchanging a lot of young people and judging them on an unfair standard mm -hmm. uh, about what they do when they're teenagers or when they're in college. So be very careful with your social media. I would encourage, I, I encourage my kids. I say, look, I wouldn't even be on it that much. I don't do social media. My daughter set up an account for me on Facebook 10 years ago, and I don't think I've ever posted any. I noticed you're not on LinkedIn. I, do. <laughs> I just, I just, I think it's wonderful and horrible at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I just think um, with young people, I would just be very careful with social media because it can really, it can really hurt you. Mm -hmm. I think increasingly it, it is in connection with the social media comment. I think you've got to be very careful about expressing your opinions on things. Mm -hmm. Be wise. I think we all know what that means. Just be careful in how you express it. I, I'm not just in some of these conversations we've had, I have not been particularly careful with how I've been communicating, but. I think nowadays you have to be careful because there's some contingent out there that's going to look at what you say and it's so accessible now because everything is online and, and it's just going to get you in trouble. So I, I would be careful with um, your political viewpoints. And then I think as a manager, somebody's going to be a manager. I think there's a principle that I've always tried to follow. Maybe I'm not always been successful at it, but I still think it's a correct principle. And that is do not get ahead of the elected officials. There's so many opportunities when you get these ideas and say, we need to do this, we need to do that. And I think you, you don't want to get ahead of elected officials. So those are just a couple of comments. I would, I think it's a great profession. I would encourage anyone to get into it. Yeah, that was my next question. I would assume that you were going to say something positive. You clearly have so much to offer in the field. It would surprise me if you wouldn't say to others that it's a field that's worth investigating. But can you say maybe a couple of things that make it a good profession? What is it that you derive from this that makes you? Well, it's meaningful. It's a, it's a profession that has meaning. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to demean other positions that may not, but it's, you can be in a community and play an integral role of improving that community, whether it's solving problems, whether it's making people's lives better, whether it's serving other people, providing service, it's a very meaningful career. Mm -hmm. And you're able to see the fruits of your labors in a very direct way. Mm -hmm. Interact with a lot of different people, variety of people, diverse group of people in your community. I might go on and on about the positives. I think the positives so far outweigh the negatives. All those things I said before would just be things I think upcomers would need to be careful about. But I think I, I could talk forever about all the pluses of local government management. Yeah. I really, I love it. And there are some local governments that struggle. It, and I think that when you are looking for, this is true for me as well, for a client, I want a client that I can work well with. That's it, a good match sort of to where I'm at in terms of my professional interests. Some of, there are some that the red flags just go up and I'm okay. If that 
match doesn't happen. And I'm, I'm, I say to them when I work with boards and they're talking about hiring a new manager, that managers do look at their history of how well they've kept managers in the past. How, what are the transitions like? And that they should really think through how they present themselves. I think that there's an old way of thinking that everybody wants the job. And they're going to be clamoring. It's not really <laughs> if you really want the cream of the crop. There's some, there's a few things you have to do. Right. And so that's my take on it. And I, I wonder if that resonates with you. If yes, it does very much. Some communities have reputations for being manager eaters. <laughs> I think you want to be careful of those. I, I will give you a, one example of a community I was, I had interviewed with, I guess it's been about a year, pushing two years ago now. It was a great paying job. It was a really stable, economically stable town, community. And, but it just didn't feel right. And you started talking to other people who, who were familiar with it. They said, oh, it's just not a very stable place. And I think some managers, whether it's out of desperation or just the excitement that they can change it, jump into those positions. And I think you have to be very careful because the best, best predictor of future behavior or future is uh, behavior is past behavior. Now it's not exact, of course, but I think if you have to see a community that just has a history of really being a rough place, I think you want to be careful with that because yeah. oftentimes you get into a, a position like this and if it doesn't go well, see when managers lose their job, it's public. So if it doesn't go well or it, it blows up, that tends to be a very public pronouncement. And so if, if you jump into a community that really isn't, that's a manager eater and it goes south, you're then for your next vision, having to deal with that previous position. Mm -hmm. So I think managers or people want to get into the profession. I think you shouldn't sacrifice or compromise on those things that are most important because you may pay for it later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it can take uh, some time too, as you develop in your profession to understand when a board is meeting, there is a certain level of respect and civility that, that you should expect from that body. And if that doesn't happen, we all know maybe there's a mayor with a big personality and we know how they are outside that meeting. But when the meeting comes together and they're discussing issues, if you see things just flying out of it's probably not going to hold together well when you're outside the meeting and it can really be perilous to work in an environment like that. And that kind of goes back to a skill that I don't know if we're losing that you and I have had some conversations about this, that sort of ability to find a neutral tone is actually a, it's a competency that we have to cultivate and talk more about what does that look like? It doesn't mean we're we we're allowed to have differences. That's good. That's yeah. it's acceptable. It's a way to work together, but the lack of neutrality can be really, it can lead to some really bad outcomes yes. when people have to work together with that kind of environment. So I think young professionals may have a little more difficult time navigating that. Cause I think that has been lost this cancel culture or call out culture, as they say, I haven't seen it really infect local government too much, but I know it's all around. It's in the community. I don't know if you have any experience. Oh, I, have. I have, but it's, you're not going to get managers talking about it. Talk to some of your managers you work with and, and, and some of them will probably say, yeah, yeah, it's a problem, but I. I think most managers um, have become savvy enough to try and avoid some of those pitfalls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I would say that you said something a minute ago about if you're in an interview, if you're a new manager, even a, a manager looking at another position, and you go into that interview and there's red flags then, mm-hmm. that's the time to fail, in my opinion. It, it's like my daughter, um, who's now married uh, and has four kids, but she years ago, she was commenting on a guy she was dating. And I made the comment to her, I said, look, I said, if you have a guy that's not treating you well on the first date, that's a red flag. And it means get, because these guys are probably never going to behave any better than they do on the first date. And I think elected bodies, there's, there's a similarity. You're in an interview process. They're interviewing you. You're interviewing them. Everyone's on their best behavior. So if you see red flags at that point, that's probably should get you paused to say, I need to probably get out of this one. Mm-hmm. Well, I so agree. There are so many great managers that are retiring. And so I do think about mentors out there. I think of some of the professional managers in the state. Now, I know APMM talks about this, how to bring more managers up to the pipeline. And so anyway, I think this advice is all really great for, particularly for young people that are coming up through and navigating how to get to a good manager spot. They all want that plum spot that can help them progress in their professional portfolio. Yeah. Uh, I want to, so we're going to go back to this question. We talked a little bit before we began today about challenges facing municipal managers, and we've touched on a few of them here. I think, yeah, I think we really covered that question. I don't know if there's anything else you wrote down that you're thinking of, but yeah, just one thing that you, I think you've heard me say this before, and I think this is a growing problem that I think it started maybe 10 years ago or so, but it's this blurring between the lines between federal, state, and local. Uh, oh, yes. Government is, is, is based on a, a system of federalism. You have the federal government that has their lane and their set of responsibilities. You have the state governments, which have their lane on the highway and their responsibility, the local governments. And local governments typically do some of the the day-to-day services, trash collection, police, parks, streets and roads, and, and all those kinds of things. The states typically deal with some of the bigger issues, some of the human service kinds of things, civil rights, all those kinds of, of, of issues, some of the licensing and, and, and some of these bigger issues. The federal government is immigration and national defense and, and a lot of those things. Over the last, this is what they started probably even 30, 40 years ago, there's an increasingly blurring of the lines. So now you have the federal government intimately involved with local education. You have states involved in things that they weren't historically, and you've got local governments involved, increasingly involved in things that they're probably not well equipped to do either. Mm-hmm. Is this, if this keeps going this way, I think it creates tension at the lo- for the local government manager, because oftentimes he or she is not going to have the tools to accomplish what those elected bodies are trying to accomplish. And I won't go into details because some of these are very politically charged issues, but I think most managers can probably nod their head and know the kinds of things I'm talking about. But it just because we're, we're very good at doing police and, and roads and trash collection. We may not be good at other things. We may not be good at adjudicating things, for example. That's more for the county in Maryland or the state and other. So, I really think that's a challenge and I think it's still a little bit early, but you see this kind of blurring of the lines that's occurring more and more. 
And I think it's a challenge for managers. I think you have to really be savvy enough to navigate through that. What that makes me think about when you're, as you talk, is a systems perspective. So in a systems perspective, we know we're all connected. But what is important to know is that there is a relationship to this other level, but we're not, that's not our purpose. In other words, our particular role is such and such. So we don't have to form a position on it. That's where I think you've said you get into trouble when you start trying to form a position at a local government that really all you really need to do is help people understand that is something that is where we are connected to a state agency, which does X, Y, Z, or at a state level, you might be able to find such and such. In other words, we can help you relate to that other body, but we're not going to take that on here. I don't know, you know, if that's always easy to get across to elected bodies that want to go down that path, but it just makes me think about getting really clear about our relationship to the other as opposed to where we stand on something. Yeah. Really can get tangled. I am very interested in what you have to say about the nature of change in municipal government, because uh, it's the thing that I'm just so focused on these days. And and I said something earlier before we got on, just how managers are, can be really good at keeping things smooth and running, particularly through transitions when there's changes that are happening in, in the, at the elected level. But then it can be difficult, particularly I think now we are tending to be in a more in time of uncertainty or chaotic. I don't know if this maybe relates to what you were talking to just a moment ago, that there are a lot of changes that are happening around us that are impacting local government. But my interest in, in talking to you is what do you think is important to preserve? In other words, in your field, as what you, in local government, what is important to preserve as a value, as a core practice? And is there some things that you can say, no, I think we need to really change or progress these other aspects of what we do in local government? Yeah, I, I do think one of the, you don't hear this as much in ICMA and, and other kinds of outlets, but when I came up through city manager, political neutrality was a very important value, not only because it allowed you to be above partisanship and, and be the objective person who can give it a, an objective opinion, but also keeps you out of trouble. And I think that's a value, which I don't know if it's, if we're losing that or not, I don't know. Some people may argue, yes, some, but it's one I think we need to preserve. I do think that political neutrality for the local government manager is very important. I think also the respect that elected officials deserve. I think managers, sometimes we can make fun of elected officials who maybe aren't doing a good job or who maybe do something that appears foolish to us. But I think maintaining that respect for the position of an elected official is really important for a manager to do because your fellow staff, I think are going to see that. If you have contempt for your elected officials, they're going to see that yeah. eventually. And so I think that's a value that I think is important is, is if you don't respect the person at least respect the position yeah, and that's important. And I think if you do, then I think most elected officials will reciprocate. I think you'll have that mutual respect. Mm -hmm. Those are a couple that I think are, you know, all of the nuts and bolts. We don't talk as much about the nuts and bolts anymore, how to budget, how to do this, how to manage a water and sewer system. 
that's a shame. I go to these, one of these ICMA conferences now for a long time, and we don't talk about the same things that we did 25 years ago. And some of that's good. I'm glad we don't. But some of it, I think, is unfortunate because new managers aren't getting the nuts and bolts of how to manage them. Yeah. Yeah. Predictability and uh, redundancy, it, it needs to have a comeback. Yeah. And to change, is there anything in particular that you would say, this needs to change? Yeah. First, I, I think it's important to understand that our system of government is designed to go really slow. We have all sorts of things in place that make change, fast change, a little bit difficult. Yeah. Editors need to understand that don't try and push change through so fast because our system is not really built for that and you'll get a lot of resistance. I think understanding and be respectful of the diversity of opinions we have in our communities. And so if you're going to be doing changes, I think you need to do it fairly slowly and deliberately and give people the opportunity to put their two cents in. So how we do change, how we do change. How we do change. I think it's important that the objective is not just to get the change done. Mm. The objective is to get the change done and still have the community unified around that change, or at least as much as you can get unity. So I think too often some managers or maybe and elected officials are maybe trying to push change to through, through too quickly. And I think that's, that's not really being mindful of opposing views and, and, and I think managers need to, to recognize that too. Mm -hmm. And I think with change in order to get change done, I think you have to, you've got to establish levels of trust. So with your employees, if you're going to be implementing changes that will impact them, I think before you ever try and do that, you got to try and develop the relationship of trust with them that they at least, while they may not disagree, while they may not agree with you, they at least believe you. They at least say, okay, I, Matt, I think Matt's awful in this one, but I think he's a straight shooter and I, I don't think he's trying to pull one over on us. I think he really believes this. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of those characteristics of, of leadership that is important is honesty and being a straight shooter. Yeah. So it's not so much what they did, it's how they did it along that. Yeah. So it's very wise words. I can't believe we're coming up on this hour. I can't believe we've been, been talking for an hour. I want to ask you in closing, Matt, just if there's a project that you're really into right now that is on your, either on your horizon or is something that you're working on that you're excited about. There's a number of, I'll just mention one. Okay. We're, we're contemplating the purchase of an old dilapidated school. Mm -hmm. It's not a school right now. It's something else, but we're trying to work with the current property owner to purchase that and then decide what we're going to do with this fairly significant size parcel of ground. A lot of, of course, moving parts to it and environmental issues. And it's right in the middle of a very established neighborhood. So, um, Working closely with that neighborhood is a very part, important part of that project. But that's exciting because you take something, this is again, why this job is so great, is you can take something which is an eyesore, which is a problem, which people hate, and it drives them crazy, and you can hopefully make it into something that is, is something that's beneficial. Yeah, it's beautiful. I know a couple of municipalities have done this. So do you have a few others that you're talking to or looking oh, at? We've done, I, we did, we've done this, we did this at Carlisle on a couple of occasions. We did a, a bunch <laughs> in Maryland. Yeah. So picking the brains of other people who have done it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think we have an idea that it's going to be a recreational use. That's great. Um, but we just got to figure out the details and, and we want to work closely with the neighborhood to determine that. 
That is very exciting. Yeah. Oh, I think repurposing old buildings is as exciting as it gets. If it can, yeah. it can be done and it's a big project. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to let you go today, Matt. I just, again, want to thank you so much for talking. And uh, if you stay on just a moment, let me close this up and then we'll just go over a few details, but it was good to see you. And I'm so glad everybody's going to hear a little bit more about. Thank you. you do in Europe. Okay. Hold on just a second.